It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to the podcast a weekly adventure in the countryside from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm your host. So we're currently in the middle of our lovely season of mindful escapes into nature. This is season 15 of the podcast and up until this point, all of our episodes, some 187 of them, have been set in the British countryside. But not this one. Our colleague Margaret Bartlett recently visited Wellington in New Zealand to explore an incredibly successful wildlife haven that could provide some conservation solutions for our own island nation. First, though, we hear the journal of botanist Joseph Banks, who travelled with James Cook on his first expedition to New Zealand in 1770. Here he describes the astonishingly loud dawn chorus he experienced on the 17th of January in Totaranui, Marlborough Sounds, at the top of the South Island. We're including it because it gives an idea of the scale of New Zealand's bird population before the arrival of European settlers. The extract is read by Margaret's brother, Tim Bartlett. This morn I was awaked by the singing of the birds ashore, from whence we are distant not a quarter of a mile. The numbers of them were certainly very great, who seemed to strain their throats with emulation, perhaps. Their voices were certainly the most melodious wild music I have ever heard, almost imitating small bells, but with the most tunable silver sound imaginable, to which maybe the distance was no small addition. On inquiring of our people, I was told that they have observed them ever since we have been here, and that they begin to sing at about one or two in the morn, and continue till sunrise, after which they are silent all day, like our nightingales. My name is Dr Danielle Shanahan, I'm Chief Executive at Zealandia Te Maraatane. And this is an absolutely amazing, beautiful, huge site. It's 225 hectares, am I right? That's correct. And it's one of the first, well the world's first, urban eco-sanctuaries where 
it's been um, after you know lots and lots of research and development and work. It's it's totally predator free, um, and that allows um, the native um, bird life of New Zealand to, to thrive here. So I'd just like to know a little bit, well, for our British listeners mm. and listeners around the world, why why um, did New Zealand develop? So many. Why there's so many flightless birds here? For a mm. start, I mean, what was what's the sort of history in the background? Yeah, well, we, you know, New Zealand was isolated for millions and millions of years. Yeah. So the biodiversity here evolved largely in the absence of ground-dwelling mammals. So the only mammals that we have here are bats mm-hmm. and also seals. So you know, so we've got quite a unique um, sort of, I guess, variety of biodiversity. What happened as a result of that is really we saw birds, sometimes insects as well, fill the niches that you might ordinarily see mammals in. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, grazing animals, we had our moa, and we've um, also got, for example, our takahe, which we have here at Zealandia. Mm. You know, these, these species fill those sorts of niches that you might find deer in or goats in or, or some of those other types of animals. So, so the net result, really, is that these birds have have evolved very unique features that mean they're very susceptible to the effects of predatory mammals. That's why places like Zealandia are needed. Mm-hmm. So what happened when the Māori arrived in... Um, is, it was only about 800 years ago, is that correct? That, um, yeah, I mean... Humans arrived here to colonise. Yeah. That's right, yeah. So arrived over a, a quite a period of time, you know, multiple um, arrivals. Mm. Um, when Māori arrived... You know, of course, there were the initial impacts of hunting, for example, and also the introduction of kiori, which is a a, a rat. Um, And that had an initial impact, but really the major impacts were felt when this area was colonised by British, in fact, of course. Mm. So we saw massive loss of... Um, forest, so forest was felled, and also the introduction of a number of species. In fact, we had a dedicated society, the Acclimatisation Society, which was specifically, uh, you know, tasked with trying to make this place feel a bit more like home. So the arrival of things like um, blackbirds and house sparrows and those sorts of species really made that this place feel more like home, but ultimately have resulted in the, the decimation of a lot of our native biodiversity. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so so the task here was to just, first of all, the site had to be cleared of all those all those um, predators and mammals that, that would have... I mean, what was the main problem? Were they eating eggs? Were they kind of eating the birds themselves? Was it... Was it they do all sorts of damage across mm. multiple different dimensions. So, for mm. example, deer and pigs, they root up vegetation. Um, mice and rats eat seeds of trees. So you actually can prevent your regeneration of forests, so your habitat isn't as good. But then the direct effects, like predation on uh, adults and also chicks and eggs of a lot of our native birds, um, just really quite significant as well. Mm. So this place was founded, really, the, the most important aspect of this place is this fence, this nine kilometre fence, which keeps out those introduced animals. It does a very, very good job. It was the first of its kind in the world. Keeps out 15 different species from cats through to deer through to rats. Um, and ultimately, it's allowed the biodiversity in this area to flourish. Fantastic. So, oh gosh, we've just seen two absolutely beautiful tui come and sit on the, on the, oh, 
What's the Māori word? The harakiki, the flax. So this, I mean, tui is an incredible species. They they drop down to about a dozen pair in the city environment around Wellington. Now, they're the most common species that you see throughout the city, and that is the effect of Zealandia, of having this place that we've put aside for nature to allow biodiversity, to allow our native birds to flourish. And it's infected the entire rest of our city, and it's just incredible to see that happen in just 20 years. So our people are seeing these birds showing up in their backyards, some they've never seen before, and it's motivating people to get involved, to do trapping in their backyards of, of introduced predators. And that in itself is having a massive effect on biodiversity as well. Right. So, you know, success is breeding success. It's getting the whole community involved and engaged and excited about what they're seeing. One of the only cities in the world now where bird biodiversity is on the rise, not the decline. That's, that's incredible. And have you noticed any effect in the rest of New Zealand in terms of, I mean, there are, other, are, are there other cities doing similar things? Completely. So, mm. you know, this place has inspired the establishment of other fence sanctuaries, but I mm. think one of its biggest impacts is actually seeing what is possible in a short period of time. Yeah. It has been one of the major um, instigators or inspirations behind an initiative called Predator Free New Zealand. So that's the goal of eradicating rats, stoats and other weasels and so forth and also possums from the entire New Zealand landscape by 2050. Very big aspirational goal, a real stretch goal, but that inspiration came from seeing these birds showing up in people's backyards around Wellington and going, what can we do to look after these guys and the places where we live? Mm, mm. So places like this, where we've gone hard and mm. gone strong, they really can be a stronghold for us and provide that inspiration for a brighter future. Yeah. So I read, I read that the ultimate goal here is to make it, to make it as it was before humans, humans landed on, in, on these islands. That's right. So you know, yeah. a big aspirational goal is to have yeah. the towering podocarp forest. You know, the beautiful forest that New Zealand would have been once completely cloaked in mm. um, throughout this valley. Let's go for a little walk and talk a bit about the um, about the history of this actual site. Cause yeah, it, certainly. Cause when I was growing up here in Wellington, um, it was still a dam and yeah. a reservoir for water. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did it come about that, that we were finally able to kind of put this aside for, for nature instead? Yeah, well, the dams really didn't provide enough water for Wellington. Eventually, they were decommissioned. And over time... You know, the question was raised as to what would happen to this valley. And, Mm. you know, because it was a water reservoir, it wasn't developed for urbanisation. So, you know, no houses in this catchment. Yep. Or this top part of the catchment. And that's really a unique opportunity. It means we don't have... um, Because we are right at the headwaters. Yeah. It means we don't have farmland and the the types of things that you might get washing into the stream. So our water's clean. Our forest has a chance to regenerate. Yeah. And really it was the vision of, um, you know, one man, Jim Lynch, who rallied the community around him and got this vision, got people thinking about what might be possible. Yeah. They bought into what was a really ambitious dream at the time. And here we are, you know, he managed to to connect those dots and get those people behind the, yes. the goal. Absolutely incredible. And he was working, was it first of all with New Zealand Forest and Bird? society was it? Yeah, Forest and Bird and a a range of other people over Mm. time so really this was a community initiative, it got community buy-in and that was what made it um, fundamentally successful. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I remember everyone being excited about it, I have to say. And it was just such a such a kind of, I don't know, rallying cry, I suppose, to kind of make real change and made such a difference. Yeah. But, but actually, you know, I think this place has also been an exercise in patience. Mm. You know, for the first 10 years, it was hard to see the change if you mm-hmm. visited. It was hard to glimpse the birds. Yeah. But you have to give nature a little bit of time. And 20 years actually is very, very fast if you think about the whole scheme of things. Yes. And now, you know, the sanctuary is just brimming with tuatara with these mm. incredible birds. Yeah. Um, and, of course, flowing beyond the fence. Yeah, well, I've just told you, my sister lives just over the ridge in Highbury. And um, we're, we're waking up in the morning and hearing the kaka, you know, screeching across the valley and the tui singing in the, in the putakawa. And, oh, gosh, to me it's just magical because there, uh, we magical. just did not hear that when I was growing up here. Oh, completely. And, and kaka, it's a native parrot here, mm. a large native parrot. They were completely extinct from this region. Now people have them showing up in their backyards. It's yeah. just, I mean, that's remarkable. That is literally reversing the extinction of experience of nature mm, mm, yeah mm. just actually just phenomenal and yeah like you say 20 years is actually really quite a short period of time it is. it's, it's yeah. one generation yeah. i mean yeah. I've, back of the envelope estimate when i was seven mm. i think i'd probably experienced tui or encountered that bird tui about 30 times maybe in my life my seven-year-old niece mm-hmm. i reckon she would have clocked up 3,000. It's a, that's a generational shift. Yeah. Her normal yeah. is vastly different to right. my normal when I grew up. And yes. Yeah. It's incredible. incredible. It is amazing. Yeah. Should we go into this little place called Birdsong Gully? And um, in here, we well, can hear them all around us now. But this is, um, if you just, just so that you want to identify the birdsong, what you listen to, there's little uh, recordings. Now, this is the Tui. Now, when I was growing up, we always... What were they called? Parsons bird, is that right? right? Yeah, Yeah, Parsons bird. Yes, they have this little white feather at their throat, and the reference was, of course, to Parsons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They look like they're part of the church. That's right. (laughs) Okay, and then this one... The kaka, which is, which is the parrot you were just talking about, um, quite a noisy, aren't they? They are. So cool. Well, my sister was saying some of her neighbours complaining about them. Bring barking trees, is that what they do? Indeed, yeah. we, um, we're on a journey to relearn how to live with nature in New Zealand. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the kaka are particularly attracted to uh, introduced trees. So, oh. in fact, okay. you know, we have seen some of our historic trees ring barked by these birds. They mm. seem to leave our natives right. largely oh. alive. Right. <laughs> 
but yeah. you're doing a good job. So, <laughs> well, it depends on, you know, like, unfortunately, these are things that people value as well. So, yes, you know, it yeah, is about course. us as a society finding a way through it. But Of course, yeah. It is, it yeah. is interesting. Exactly. In terms of, like, how many species were actually here before you, when, when it was set up? Like, how many did you have to introduce? Well, we've introduced around 21 different species, not just birds. Yeah. So some of our most endangered invertebrates as well, for example. Right. Okay. And the tortara, of course, which is a lizard. Yep. So 21 different species have been brought in. Everything mm. else that you see here has regenerated from just what was remaining prior. So the tui is a good example of that, or Quarimako is a bellbird. Mm-hmm. Um, we did make efforts to reintroduce. It wasn't very successful. So the birds we see here now are likely the result of everything that's been happening across the landscape. Right. right. So yeah, a bit of a bit of a mixed bag. But yeah. um, here, you you know, a good day you'd see just over 30 bird species, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and probably around two thirds of those would be, you know, naturally regenerating, and around a third have reintroduced. Right. right yeah. Okay. All right, so, and are there any kind of um, breeding programs or anything like that happening as well? Oh, we don't do captive rearing, no. but for um, some of our species we need to do quite intensive monitoring and management. An mm. example is a hihi, mm-hmm. a stitch bird. Yep. This is um, one of the most uh, threatened species that we have here at Zealandia. Mm. So this bird... It's just struggle. It struggles, you know. Mm. We need to provide supplementary food every day. Really? Need mm. to monitor nests intensively, treat mm. for mites, you know, yeah. um, banned birds, so we know what the population's doing. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so different species require different things. That's a really intensive example. Yeah. But others, you know, uh, one of the most recent arrivals is the Titipanamu or rifleman. <gasps> Um, oh, those are absolutely tiny. They're New Zealand's yeah. smallest birds. So they're six grams, fit on a teaspoon. Oh, you're just kidding. tiny, oh. very lovely little birds. No tail, so they just look like little ping pong balls. <laughs> um, but they have done incredibly well. They can, we brought them in 2018, uh-huh. and they've just gone crazy. You know, they've established outside the sanctuary now. Yep, yep. Um, breeding well, one of the more common birds that you're hearing, actually. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, we're just going down now towards the the other end of the lake, which is actually so pretty. And look, oh, you can take boats across this lake as well. Yeah, we've got a little electric boat, which is one of the yeah. best ways to travel, no noise. Yeah, um, yeah. It just floats along and you get to see the cormorant species that have made their home here. Oh. Which is a little more challenging to see from the land, obviously. Yeah, yeah, of course. Mm. Oh, that's so good. And are the cormorants, they're a native? They are. Uh, yeah. In fact, one of the species, uh, the pied shag, mm-hmm. is, its threat status has actually been downgraded as a result of Zealandia. So they oh, weren't okay. introduced, they um, naturally introduced themselves right. actually when the yeah. sanctuary was established. Oh, fantastic. Um, we can't see many of them today. They're probably off fishing out at sea. Yeah. Um, they nest here and mm-hmm. they go out to sea and fish and then come back at night again. Mm-hmm. Um, but often you'll get to see chicks begging right in that immediate part that we can oh, yeah, these really fallen close. logs in the lake. Yeah, I can see sort of nesty kind of things there. Indeed. It's fantastic. So Zelania also really is not just about the birds, you know, as I've already briefly mentioned, the invertebrates mm. and the lizards, but our big focus um, over the last few years has been on our freshwater. Right. Uh, wetlands, you know, there's less than 10% of what was here prior remaining in New Zealand. Mm. Um, 
you know, systems like these, this lake, it was um, hugely affected by introduced perch. Dark queens. Oh, look at those kids. Oh, they're so cute. <laughs> they're the tiniest things, aren't they? Like, oh. What, what type of duck are they? Oh, yeah, they're uh, scorp. They scorp. Are. Yeah. Oh, adorable. Three little. Mm-hmm. Oh, four. Look, there's a four. <laughs> oh, it's so cute. <laughs> Oh, you just want to cuddle them, don't you? I know. That's great. Oh, adorable. Oh, Mum's gone, just gone for a swim. Yeah, and one of the ducklings is, oh, it's just popped back up. Oh, yeah. oh sweet. Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, freshwater, yeah, so mm. one of our next major projects, so we've eradicated um, European perch from this reservoir. Great. Um, there were thousands in here, 22,000 fish. It's the largest effort that I'm aware of to eradicate and introduce fish in the world. Mm-hmm. And now we have the opportunity to start bringing back in native fish species that mm. really were predated on and, and uh, suffered f- suffer elsewhere from water quality issues. Right. So, yeah, right. really exciting um, oh. for us to be able to start, you know, heading yeah. into that, those waters, I guess, if you, yes, <laughs> if yeah. you will. Gosh, it's a huge amount of perch. So were they relocated or were they all just culled? The they were culled, yeah. yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it just, um, they cause all sorts of problems. They, mm. as I say, predate on native fish, but also they completely decimate the invertebrate community. Right, yeah. And that means the system becomes quite out of balance. Mm. So, yeah, one of, that's one of our first efforts to try and improve the water quality in our main reservoir. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, fantastic. So what sort of invertebrates are you talking about? We, so in the lake, yeah. things like water boatmen and dragonflies and damselflies, yep. all of those things are, are yep. crucial for um, particularly young. Oh, look. Oh, yeah. Well, we've just it's come across a takahe. Wow. Wow. Takahe are kind of quite big round birds, aren't they? They are. So this is one of our... Flightless species in New Zealand, and in fact, they were thought to be extinct, but rediscovered in the 1950s. Gosh, um, yeah, so yeah, so now mm. there's roughly 450, maybe a few more than that remaining in the whole world. We're oh. lucky enough to have a pair here at Zealandia. Um, these are this is an elderly pair, so it's okay. primarily for advocacy reasons for mm-hmm. people to see this incredible species. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but they're they're really beautiful. But a, a great example, if you if, if your listeners Google Takahe. Mm. If you look at them, if you think about that problem of um, mammalian predators, if you look at this bird from above, mm. they've got quite a green back and they blend in with right. low vegetation. But if you look from below, they're quite blue. Yeah, with, with the sort of pinky red legs. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And they've got some sort of habits that, you know, leave a lot of smell around, if you will. You know, right, they have right. a latrine very close to their nest. Oh. So these sorts of things aren't great in terms yeah. of attracting in things like stoats and ferrets that are a real yeah. problem for these birds. It makes them easy to find. It so. does, it does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they like, to, what, what kind of habitat do they like? They like their upland grasslands, is that where you... Well, that was where or, they were found. Yeah. But the trick with things like this is often you'll find species just where they've managed to hang on, not yeah. necessarily where the optimal habitat is. Mm. So, um, uh, you know, grassy habitat, certainly that kind of thing is, is very key for these mm. birds. That's what they like to eat. And what gives a good football-sized bird as well. Yeah, yeah. Big chunky legs. Chunky legs, chunky everything, chunky yeah. big beak and yeah. beautiful blue blue and green colour feathers. 
Yeah. And there's, yeah. A lot of people think of Zealandia as primarily being about the birds, but we also, plants are obviously, you know, critical. They provide the habitat. Yeah, of course, yes. Uh, if you lucky visitors can see um, our efforts to reintroduce mistletoe. Ah, oh, right. This, so there's a species here that's got a root yep. that's sort of climbing down another tree and mm-hmm. it's actually getting some nutrition from that tree. Mm-hmm. So the sanctuary, because it was completely cleared, a lot of what we're seeing here is regeneration from what seeds were left in the soils. Right, yeah. We do a lot of planting as well. But it means that what we're missing often is these epiphyte species, the species that live on others or in the crook of other trees. Yep. So, you know, quite specific efforts to reintroduce these. Mm-hmm. And that's critical when you think about an ecosystem. It's made up of lots of different moving parts, and you need all those parts yeah. for it to, you know, have resilience, for it to be able to shift and change, particularly when we're thinking about climate change change mm-hmm. so bringing in the mistletoe and those other epiphytes is critical to that long-term you know yeah. 500 year vision of restoration yeah and like you say providing food for a wide variety of, of, of creatures that's right yeah, yeah, yeah. So a nice fleshy seed that um, mm. likely be eaten by geckos mm. also our birds as well but even a lot of that stuff is not really known in New Zealand so mm. um the wonderful thing about Zealandia, we have a fantastic relationship with Victoria University of Wellington, Te Waka. So all of these kinds of projects have a great opportunity for research and discovering new things about natural history, how to do conservation better, yeah. and so forth. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So it's a fantastic resource for the whole country in so many ways. It really is. Yeah. It's, it's second to none, I'd say. When you're talking about regenerating the... Um, Podocarp forest. Mm. So, are there other um, trees that you're planting a lot of that will help that process along? Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of promoting that, Mm. really the key has to be planting those particular species that create that forest environment. Yeah. Um, So, you start to see on some of our slopes, so one of our slopes as you come into the sanctuary on the right is our oldest slope that's 150 years of forest regeneration. Right. We're starting to see some trees poking above the tree line. Ah, yeah, I can see that, yeah. Kahikatea, primarily. Kahikatea, mm-hmm. And Iwariwa, so we're starting to see, you know, that structure forming. Yeah. Um, But obviously planting things like uh, northern rata and rimu, uh, those sorts of species are really critical for... Mm. I guess getting things going for the next 500 years. Yeah, yeah. So you've also got a lot of you've got a lot of tree ferns I can see, and um, and is there manuka? Is that one of the first things that comes yeah, when you're regenerating? Manu- that's right, manuka, manuka and carnuka yeah. forest. So mm. uh, we also have a second reservoir further up the valley. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to look at because that was once full, and then after it was decommissioned, the water level was dropped by, you know, many metres, probably yeah. 15 metres or so. Then when you look at the forest that's regenerated where once the water was, it's mostly kanuka and manuka forest. Oh, right, OK. So quite dense, it provides that mm-hmm. fabulous sort of nursery habitat for some of the bigger tree species. Right. And it's also really great for a lot of our birds as well. So. Right, oh, fantastic. Oh, oh, my God, look at that tuatara. <laughs> oh, my gosh, it's so big. It's actually a little guy, so this one would have, been, would have been born or hatched at Zealandia. Uh-huh. So our founders are much, much bigger. We might see one today. Oh, really? But you can often tell because they've got little beads through the back of their heads. Oh, I see. They're, they're sort of tagged. Sort of tagged, yeah. yeah. In, 
They stay so still. I know. Great for Very handy. <laughs> <coughs> Very obliging. So they've got this sort of white, white tipped crest along their backs, haven't they? That's right, and, yeah. Um, they do look so dinosaur-like, don't they? Yeah, they are. <laughs> Very much an ancient species. So, do they? Are they quite good at breeding? They they've done very well here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the main area where you can see. Oh, great. Okay, thank you. The main area where you can see Tuatara is this. We have a little fence inside the sanctuary, and this mm -hmm. creates a mouse-free area. So, ah, right. um, while the fence was initially established to keep mice out, it wasn't very successful. Um, mm. They can get involved, you know, through a range of reasons, including being dropped in by birds. Of course. So yeah. yeah, we keep the small area mouse free, and the rest is has mice. They were introduced in both areas because mm -hmm. there was uncertainty at the time as to how well they'd survive mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. mice present. But they've done very, very well, and they're throughout the sanctuary. It's just that this happens to be the easiest place to spot them. There he is. And oh look! Oh my gosh, this is so cute. So this is like a little bit, uh, feeding station. That's right, yeah. So here we feed our kaka to try and keep a population anchored in the sanctuary. So they're, oh, right. of course, breeding all over the city, but this provides the most secure, safe place for them to breed. So mm. we want to keep some here and yeah. give security for the future. Yeah. So they've got this little... Um, they step on the platform and it opens the, um, the bird feed container. And they... Oh, look... It's incredible how they use their... Yeah. It's almost like they use their claws like hands. Yeah. Oh. And what are they eating mostly? So they're eating a, um, a really healthy, balanced palate. Actually, so, you know, made up of different grains and nutrient additions and so forth. One of the biggest problems um, for this species in our city environment is when people feed them thinking they're doing the right thing, but mm. often they can feed them things like nuts and seeds, mm. and they cause a, a phosphorus-calcium imbalance, especially in growing chicks, and it causes awful diseases. It's not very nice at all. So, yeah, so that's one of the key things for us, the messages, is actually plant native plants, plant flowering trees, and that's the best way to attract the kaka to your garden. Right. They're such cute little expressive, inquisitive but they're, well, they're a parrot, aren't they? They are, yeah. 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 And they're, are they one of the favourites? Oh, People's yeah, fast favourite. Yeah. They're so <laughs> characterful. Yeah, yeah. And they kind of jump and hop. They yeah. hop along. But it's quite amusing to watch these feeders. They're designed, the reason they're designed like that is they are heavy enough for the car, like the kaka's heavy enough to open it, but mm. most other species can't. I see. The blackbirds yeah. love it, so if you watch them long enough, you'll see a blackbird duck in the side just as it opens and get its head out just in time with a pallet. <laughs> just saw one do it then. Oh. It's quite funny. It's sneaky, isn't it? And they've learnt they've learned a way to get in there. They have. Yeah. What's down there? Just saw a dead bird. Oh, no. Yeah, possibly oh. a falcon kill. Chubby oh, yeah. Oh, right, hang out here. So, what are the what are the native birds of prey here then? So, we pretty so, much only have the New Zealand falcon, Karia. Right. Um, unfortunately, most of our, our you know, other big species have gone extinct. But um, mm. the only other remaining one in New Zealand, or main one, is that as a harrier, New Zealand harrier, mm -hmm. and they tend to like the sort of more farming landscape, less so this forested landscape. Mm, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what do they prey on? Uh, 
rabbits. Or, yeah, rabbits, yeah. but also all our native birds. So oh. it's quite nice when you get native species predating on native species. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. it's like the natural balance is becoming restored. Yes, mm. yes, exactly. That's how it would have been. We were in the um, in Te Papa the other day, and they've got this model of a massive. I mean, I guess it's extinct now. I'm not sure what the name of it was. Massive. Um, bird of prey mm. that used to predate on the moa and that's right, yeah. yeah 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 no but that's incredible because when when new zealand had this, the hast eagle ah the ha- well done yeah <laughs> yay got, got it got it <laughs> big enough to carry away you know like small moa like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i must have been terrifying to see them flying around oh and God, coming it's huge in. Yeah. almost like pterodactyl <laughs> right, yeah. kind of size massive they? yeah Imagine that Māori must have been terrified of those birds. Oh, I would have thought so. <laughs> yeah. But were they mostly gone by the European the time the Europeans came? That's right, yeah. yeah. So, you know, loss of habitat and loss of moa as a primary food resource. Yeah. Really um, quite terrible for those species. Yeah. Mm. So for people who don't know, the moa was um, was a huge bird. Yeah. Were they bigger than emu? Well, yes. They, well, there's different yeah. species. Lots of different species uh, of moa. So some right. would have been very small and some very, right. very large. Right, so. right. Oh, right. I didn't realise there were a few, few different species. Yeah. That's right. Right. And they all they were all gone. That's right. Pretty all much gone. by the, the European arrival time? Or yeah, prior yeah. to European yeah. arrival. Yeah, moa completely... Mm. Hmm. We have in this section here, Yeah, this is a sort of quite damp area. Mm-hmm. We've got a stand of a tree species called swamp mire. So there's these white trunks that you can see poking up. Yeah. Now these are, re- it's a really important species. It's This is the largest, one, one of the largest stands remaining in the region. Really? But it's highly susceptible to, possibly highly susceptible to a disease called myrtle rust, mm-hmm. a fungal disease that only arrived in New Zealand a couple of years ago. Um, it affects Pahutukawa and, you know, those mm-hmm. Matesi species. Mm-hmm. Um, but this guy is a particular worry. It's one of the main strategies to respond to myrtle rust is to cryopreserve seeds. Okay. So make sure you've got a bit of a seed bank. Yep. But these seeds of this species don't preserve well at all. So uh, Karen van der Bolt, who's a um, scientist just down the road at Otari Wilton's Bush, she's doing a PhD to try and figure out how these seeds can be cryopreserved so that they're not so at risk from this you know, right. novel disease oh gosh so they just don't survive the defrosting or but yeah that's right I I suspect it's you know not surviving at different stages of that Mm. cryopreserving process yeah but so yeah again you know it's a good example of how Zealandia just you know the location just means it's such a good resource for Mm. um, you know research easy for people to get to yep you know, you can usually field work as a scientist is about going off for weeks at a time to yeah. these remote locations, but here you can live at home. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Have a nice kitchen. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Be at home in time for tea by 5:30. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Ah, here. So here's another feeding station with more, more kaka. Oh, who's that? It's a tearkeel saddleback. Ah. This is a really cool. We might see it if we walk up here. Yeah. It's yeah. a really cool bird that um. Its establishment here was the first time it had been back on the New Zealand mainland in over 100 years. Oh, wow. Really? They've declined to just one population on one island. Uh-huh. And so the rescue efforts for the species have relied on translocations to multiple different islands and eventually to this mainland site. 
Gosh, that's incredible, isn't it? They spend a lot of time on the ground. Mm. When you see them and how they behave, you can see why they're so susceptible to cats and right. you know, stoats. So just come out through there. Ah, oh, there I see, yeah. Oh no, it's a tutuai, a robin. Oh. Let's see if we can bring her in. Oh, come in. She sounds really pretty. So close to her, literally on on the branch, just in front of my face. So <coughs> it's very similar to um, the robin we get in the UK, but colouring is quite different. Yes, and I suspect that's why it got its name. But it's actually an entirely different species. So oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I suppose it's easy to confuse them, isn't it, when they look so similar? Yeah, or if you just yeah. see a little black movement in the undergrowth. Yeah. So then, yeah, I, I heard the bird and then saw a movement and put the two together, but got yeah. it wrong. So. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no. Oh, now we've just come out onto the um, walkway that's on top of the old dam. Is that's that right? right yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, look at that. So you can see that the water level has been lowered by about, I think it is that's a lot of metres anyway. Oh, right. Um, okay. It used to be right up to the top here. Oh. So if you look around, over there you can see Kanuka, Manuka. That's that regenerating forest on the hillside that got exposed when the water level went down. Right. So is that the spindly, the Kanuka, Manuka is the spindly stuff? For the, yeah, it looks yeah. sort of fluffy almost. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. Yeah. Sort of, a tear kit in the background. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Saddleback. Beautiful. But this... Um, We've done some really cool stuff here. One of the main initiatives has been reintroducing freshwater mussels, or kākahi. It's a really important species, mahinga kai, so that means uh, living food resource, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it was moved around, translocated by Māori, you know, a long time ago. And this was the first modern translocation of this species. Now, they're really cool because they've got an amazing... um, effect on the water quality so they filter around a litre of water an hour and just really can clear uh, things out a lot so Mm. having them in a place like this is is really key and we're hoping they'll they'll reproduce well and build up their numbers and they'll effectively be a keystone species in this reservoir that's fantastic so they help to keep keep the water clean that's right yeah yeah also got a hello a very cool life history as well. So the, mm. the kākahi, they, they live for decades. So, you know, really? an animal that's just 10 centimetres long could be 50 years old. Mm-hmm. They have a little um, part of their life cycle where the larvae attaches onto the fins of fish. And the fish swims around and then eventually the larvae drops off and then grows a new little freshwater mussel. But they rely on specific types of fish native fish. So we've got one here, which is the banded cockapoo, mm. but actually next we have to start bringing in the other fish that they rely on for that life cycle as well. So the next one is one called toy toy, or common bully. Mm. So it's really exciting because there's actually very few examples of any of of native New Zealand fish that have been translocated for um, conservation purposes, not to just move them out of the way of development. Right, right. So yeah, pretty exciting stuff, really pioneering yeah. conservation work happening that's, here. That's incredible, isn't it? Mm. Has the local iwi, the local Māori um, tribe, been involved as well? Yeah, yeah, our most important partners are our mana whenua. So mana whenua is the local iwi here. Um, Taranaki Fanui and Ngāti Tōrangatira. Tiatiawa. Mm-hmm. 
um, these people, they were here well before us, they know this place better, for, better than any of us, and we have this key founding document in New Zealand, the Te Tiriti o Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi, and that means that we are obliged to have a partnership with our mana whenua um, partners to ensure this place is cared for mm. properly. Yeah. So yeah, it's very important to us in every aspect of the work we do. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and more Awareness than anything, raising. it enriches our work. Yeah. And we learn a lot more than yeah. we ever could alone. Um, it adds a very unique dimension to the to the types of approaches we take here. For example, for that kākahi, you know, weaving specific baskets for the collection or for the movement, mm-hmm. you know, using traditional knowledge to actually uh, redevelop our techniques and approaches or, or things that we might ordinarily do and it, and it does add a lot of richness yeah. and it's far more exciting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so this is the upper, just over the upper dam. There's no water here, is that right? No, yeah, no water yeah. here, so this is just a little gully with a swing bridge mm-hmm. at the top of it. Oh, it's beautiful though. Look at that bush, it's just stunning, isn't it? I can hear quite a few. Kerupu. Kerupu. Oh. <laughs> you want to take a picture of yeah, that? Yeah, I do. Um, we... Gosh, it's really full of seeds and oh, I can see what's in it. Gosh, that's incredible. We were missing, so we do a series for our engagement uh, called Poo of the Week. And Poo the Poo of the, of the week. week is Kerupu and we're missing a picture. So I've just oh, managed to solve problem. that problem with your help. You've got it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Perfect. Oh, you just... It's just so nice just to hear it's the amazing, bird song around. Yeah, it's, it's yeah uh, you know, if you walk in most New Zealand forests, it's just quiet. Yeah. It's a bit depressing. Yeah. <laughs> I get very used to this, so this is my, my normal now. Yeah, exactly. When you go other places, you just be, oh, where are all the birds? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, way too quiet. But yeah. Only, you know, the only thing I really like to do is like, bottle the smell. Oh, because for yeah. me... It's one of the first things I notice when I come. Oh, look, who's that? Tineke, Saddleback. Oh, what a beautiful bird. Oh, look, I never have seen that when I was growing up at all. No. Oh, look. It's got a beautiful red, russety red um, band or blob on yeah. its back. To see one of these when you were growing up, you would have had to have gone on a massive trip to an offshore island. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh, to a place actually where most people aren't allowed to go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can see why they're so vulnerable, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, doesn't seem to notice us at no, all. No, be worried. Yeah, yeah I think, I don't, I don't know what it is, the smell. It's like something to do with the, at this time of year, is the flax flowers, the mm. flax sort of sweet mm. and um, resinous kind of a smell. <laughs> and then there's, I don't know what else it is. Just yeah. to kind of... Yeah, and the forest experience is, you know, it's all your senses involved. Yeah. It's touch, it's taste, yeah. it's smell. That's it, yeah. yeah. There's all sorts of really cool research on them. That's a, my, a key part of my background is research on the well-being benefits of nature. But there's all mm. sorts of really neat ideas. Some of them somewhat unproven, but one is mm. that I like is this idea of negative ear ions. Oh, you actually get yeah. a little negative ear ion producer for your desk. Right. But the idea is in nature, there's this higher abundance of these 
and get a VR ions, they make you feel better. Yeah. Um, or at least a proportion of the population feels better. <laughs> right. <laughs> quite a neat concept that there's something really physical happening in your hair. Absolutely. It's it has a marked effect on your blood pressure. Uh-huh. You know. Yep. Yeah. How you feel, your levels of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Those sorts of things. Mm. And to close this recording from New Zealand, Tim Bartlett reads a poem about the extinct bird, the Huia, written by celebrated New Zealand poet Bill Manhire, who was the country's inaugural poet laureate in the 1990s. Huia are regarded as sacred by the Maori and highly prized for their beautiful white-tipped tail feathers. The bird was already rare by the time European settlers arrived in the 1840s, and the last confirmed sighting was in 1907. Huia by Bill Manhire. I was the first of birds to sing. I sang to signal rain. The one I loved was singing and singing once again. My wings were made of sunlight. My tail was made of frost. My song was now a warning and now a song of love. I sang upon a postage stamp. I sang upon your coins. But money courted beauty. You could not see the joins. Where are you when you vanish? Where are you when you're found? I'm made of greed and anguish, a feather on the ground. I lived among you once, and now I can't be found. I'm made of things that vanish, a feather on the ground. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. So from the wonders of spring in New Zealand and Zealandia, we're back to the studio in Bristol on a snowy day, uh, a cold snowy day, pretty much at the beginning of spring in Britain. And um, talking of snowflakes, <laughs> I'm joined in the studio by my regular podcast team of Hannah and Jack, but also Margaret, who presented that wonderful adventure, audio adventure, Down Under. 
Firstly, Margaret, lovely to have you here. Thank you for thank you for coming along. Thank you for having me. So that that was that happened over Christmas. You went to New Zealand at Christmas because, yes. as you can tell from Margaret's accent, she may well be from that part <laughs> of the world. Yeah, I still have it after all these years. Yes, yes, we went back for the first time since 2018, actually. Which and normally I go back every two years or so to visit my family. So my my mother and sister and brother and their families still live out there, obviously. Uh, yeah, so it was quite amazing to be able to go back after such a long time. COVID got in the way. COVID had got in the way for a long time. My goodness, that mm. must be a, quite a feeling. Mm. And then to go to this amazing place, it's, I mean, one of the reasons why you recorded that and why I was keen to feature it, because it just offers an insight into you know, we're an island like New Zealand. We've got quite a lot of similar issues with degraded environment and impact of human activity, mm. but quite different ways of tackling it from the Zealandia example. Mm. So that was really interesting. I mean, you, you've lived in both places for a long period. Do you notice that difference? Do you think that New Zealanders have a stronger sense of identity with their nature? I've always, yes, I think that. I mean, I kind of grew up in the with a new generation of Kiwis who were very, I'm not not necessarily politicised, but, but very conscious of our clean, green New Zealand kind of ethos. And that was sort of our... How do you how do you say our sort of stamp that, USP? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was that was kind of our sort of marketing tool around yeah. the world. Come see Middle Earth, the sort yeah. of filming locations for all the Tolkien films. Yeah. yeah, and all that, all of that. And I grew up with all that and being, you know, positive about about uh, being a nuclear free country in in all of that sort of clean green stuff that we were brought up with. Our hydroelectric power, no no um, nuclear power stations, and all that kind of thing. Um, so it's always sort of seemed to me to be quite an important part of New, the New Zealand culture. And I left, oh gosh, when did I leave? It was the late 90s, about 96, 97, when I left New Zealand to go travelling, um, thinking that I would You're go still travelling now. I still go, <laughs> it's yeah. a long journey. I was just like, what happened? <laughs> no, I did go thinking I would be back within two years. But I've Still not lived in New Zealand <laughs> since, um, but every time I do go back, I, I you know, for example, the um, the bush on the hills around Wellington has been regenerating, um, and I've noticed since I started going back, you know, in about two thousand and four or so, the last sort of eighteen to twenty years, the amount of growth is just phenomenal, and the whole the there are whole sort of stretches of valley that are just uh, full of regenerating bush, which before we're just covered in yellow gorse and scrub. It was that active active intervention on the part of conservationists and government bodies, or was it just left? I'm not entirely au fait with the the strategy of Wellington City Council or Wellington various other councils, but as far as I'm aware it was it was a as strategy, but also that a lot of the farmland, you know, it had been cleared to be farmed. And it just wasn't productive. Steep hillsides, you know, not really great for the sheep and, um, you know, just wasn't really yielding very much. So they decided to, to put it all back to bush. And the bushwalks and nature walks you can do around Wellington Harbour and around that valley, those valleys are just absolutely gorgeous. Oh, yeah. uh, it's enticing, but also slightly envy-inducing. Yes. Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit of, sort of bittersweetness here. I find it really interesting that you said, like, before you left, New Zealand was in this, this incredible place. It was there was 
it's nice and green and feels there was all the animals and stuff there and mm. then you've gone away and gone back and it feels that that's there's more of that now mm. and it, it has improved yeah which so it's gone from a good place to almost a better place whereas i feel like a lot of other places like my assumption for the the uk is it was good before and if people have gone away and come back it's probably more than likely that it's not as good as it was it doesn't have that same sort of feel as what it sounds like new zealand has mm. we've chronicled declines in the uk and loss of habitat in the last 20 years when we've known about how important it is to protect it it has accelerated we're losing species at an ever more rapid rate and precious habitats so we have a different attitude as a and i don't think it's just governmental i think it's a it's a national sort of we don't treasure our wildlife as much as it sounds like there's a sense of ownership from what danielle was saying people genuinely are doing their best in their own gardens. I mean, of course, people put up bird feeders, but these people are trapping the non-native creatures. I mean, goodness, that's quite an extreme um, effort, but shows how desperate they are to protect their own precious. Because people are seeing the effects um, in their own backyards, that they're they're invested in the same um, goals that Zealandia has, which is to go back to how it was before, yeah. before um, humans arrived. They literally want to take it back to that state, and which is a completely incredible goal. So it's a rewilding project, really. In yeah, which is a dirty word in Britain, or it's becoming for some people rewilding is a is a tough thing to cope with. It's funny that we don't use that. Term in New Zealand, I didn't. You don't. Sit, no, oh, it maybe was that's not, the thing. It it's was not used, and I right. and I never saw it anywhere. Do you do you think the word is maybe the part of the problem? I think it, I Be, think you're right because it yeah. feels like it's like oh, rewilding is it's going back to how something was. Where, where I think actually, from what I'm aware of, what people are trying to do, it's more that yes, in a way, you're taking it back to how it was, but it's in a controlled sort of you, you're in control of making that happen and. If it starts to vary off course or you don't really want it to go back a certain way, there's that control involved, which it, I, I maybe is that the... It's not like you're just letting go and letting it go back to how it was. It's you're, you're taking it forward. I think there's a few things in that. Yeah, by learning from the past. The word control is important mm. because people have always wanted to have control over their land. Uh, and to let, yeah, you can see it, how people cut their hedgerows so neat and shaven mm. because they want it to be neat and tidy. Mm. The other thing is taking land, which for many people it's fundamentally there just to grow food. And mm. it almost goes against a core value to let that go back to nature or to let it let nature have more influence over that land. So that's a really big emotional thing for people to get their heads around. Mm. Um, it is, yeah. So... Yeah, so so we've got this issue where we've got the terrible wildlife declines in Britain and some great success stories. But what struck me is where you've got people really cherishing these creatures. We have things that have done really well, like otters and red kites. And then you hear so many negative stories about, oh, the red kites are eating everything. The otters are eating all the fish. It's, um, yeah... I don't know. How do you feel about it, Hannah? You uh, throw you a, a curveball just because I know you have strong views on all these things. Well, I think as a, as a country, we have a real problem with this idea of kind of messiness and sort of letting things go and kind of the idea that this farmland would kind of be sort of left to rack and ruin, whereas really it would be kind of 
feeding us in other ways. I guess you were quite lucky in New Zealand that you knew that this land was kind of not productive and that could be proven. And it's sort of, that's a kind of tool to use to persuade people that it could be put to more effective use. That's a really nice, feeding us in other ways, because I think that's quite a good way of putting. Because it's still valuable, isn't it? Well, it just sort of, if it's, yeah, if it's not tidy, it's still good for us. Next week's episode is with Dr. Amir Khan, the TV uh, TV doctor, who's also the president of the RSPB. And he will be talking a lot about how nature feeds our health and the outdoors uh, in many, many very provable and physical ways. And I think that's a really interesting thing that it's always just viewed as, and we do, we've got to have food, we've got to eat to live. But we also, it's quality of life is based on how healthy we are, how happy we are, how at ease we are with each other. And I think nature and the countryside can provide that. I thought it was really interesting that um, the New Zealanders see these kinds of animals and these kinds of plants as a, a huge sense of um, national kind of pride. They're kind yeah. of, they're your, they're th- your, they are your things. They're the things that kind of make you unique and special. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of wondering whether or not this new series from David Attenborough will do a little bit of that for us as Brits. Charlie, good point. Yeah, that is true. Great if it would. Wild Arms, we've been working on that, Margaret and I, on um, on the ma- on a print magazine. If you didn't know, there's a print magazine out there that accompanies the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, have a look. But uh, yeah, Wild Isles. It looks pretty special, doesn't it? It looks amazing. It looks five-part um, series starting. Starts on Sunday. Yes, in fact, it was started... And when this goes out, it will have just started. The first episode will have been out. And so catch that because it is try, it's going to do what Attenborough series have done for the sort of rainforest or the, the oceans. It's going to actually, no one's done such a big series on Wild Isles. Yeah, I, gosh, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if it does kind of drive so. this sense of pride in. Um, I mean, I remember when I was a young lad, a wonderful series called Living Britain which was a sort of wild owls of its day. But of course, nature programs then were, I mean, they were big, but relatively niche. You didn't get this massive publicity campaigns. And I have a DVD of it and I still watch it. It's just lovely by a guy called Peter Crawford, but it has recognizable voiceovers. I can't tell you who they were, but it is a very soothing thing to listen to. So if you want to see Britain as it was like 25 years ago, and compare to Wild Isles, it could be quite an interesting thing, but it's called Living Britain. And you'll probably find it on YouTube or something like that. I think that one of the things that made makes it really special, though, for New Zealand is that, that lo- so many of those species are absolutely unique mm-hmm. and you don't see them anywhere else. I think that's that's such a crucial part of the, the, the conservation um, drive because yeah. no one else can do it. No one else be, can do it. Yeah. If we want these things to, to survive, we have to do it. That's, that's and different. Yeah, I think that's different because we. I, yeah, that's different because in Britain, you know, lots of these species are, fa- are found in other countries as and well. In good and, numbers. So yeah. things like lesser spotted woodpeckers, of which we have about 2,000 left mm. in Britain, mm. they're relatively numerous in France because they, their woodlands are managed in different ways. Mm. Um, can you name any species that are unique to Britain? I think I know two, but... Capicaly? Actually, that's quite a good shout. It might be. It might be. I think it might be found in, like, Scandinavia. Possibly. But we'll have um, to check next time, because we're not going to frantically Google. <laughs> <laughs> Which one, ones though. do you know? Scottish crossbill. 
Oh. Ah. So I think that is just indigenous to okay. Scotland. It's not very different to the common crossbill, but it um, this has a different accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's the Scottish wildcat, I think, ah. which I think might be a subspecies. But are there any native species that we have lost? They're just native to the British Isles. Yeah. I, well, I, do you know what? Because we're much closer to a continent, I don't think we have, whereas New Zealand is, how, how far is it from Australia? Oh, a lot of miles. A lot of miles, yeah. And, and then <laughs> some <ask>. more miles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's like three hours on the plane, yeah, three and a half so, hours on a so, plane. from. So, um, doesn't it's, look it's on a, the map. It's, it's about Abergavenny no. and Cardiff. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's interesting. So you will have endemic species that don't exist anywhere else. Whereas well, that's Britain, and a lot of them. So, Britain is yeah. just a strong wind to mm. blow stuff over from the continent. So um, we don't really have a lot of uh, a lot of endemic yeah. critters. Yeah. But the pro- I think there are a few flowers that we have in like um, yeah, there's, there's the odd. Uh, sort of um, orchids and a, a few little things that are found around the place. We must do a, a list of. We will. Yes. We'll hunt them down. I can see of, an article for the magazine coming on there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah, come <laughs> yeah, on, yeah. generated some content today. Oh, there we are. Well done, team. Bristol pigeon. Bristol pigeon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unique. Uh, uh, how are you coping in the snow, Jack? I know you've got uh, a big commitment tonight. It's, snow's fine. It, it's it's delayed a few things. I've had to change scouts this evening. Scouts, yeah. It's but it's, it's been it's been sort of that nice snow that's come down. It's covered everywhere, but it hasn't caused, in my opinion, too much chaos. The roads have been pretty clear, but it was nice. It's been I've enjoyed today because it's felt like you don't get snow that often, and it's snowed kind of pretty much all day. Yes. And it's been slightly. I've just kept looking out the window because it's just like you, you don't experience this all the time. Where it's just snowing out. No, it's, no, it's March. It's, it's sort of we're getting towards mid-March now, um, and I think a couple of weeks ago we were celebrating how wonderful spring was. <laughs> so uh, it's felt warm today. <laughs> slightly premature. Yeah, slightly <laughs> premature. So I'm sorry about that. So if you got carried away with um, with our uh, overly optimistic approach to spring, but it's hopefully around the corner once we're through this icy blast. Anyway, perfect for one of the warmest podcasts <laughs> we've ever done in, from New Zealand. <laughs> that's yes. true. That's true. It's true. Well, it provides a lovely contrast. Um, so that was our escape to New Zealand, our first time abroad. There will be more abroad at some stage. I know we have some recordings from Antarctica coming up, but most of our stories will be from the UK. And as spring is coming, there'll be more and more beautiful birdsong and more and more adventures in the countryside. But as I say, next week, join us with uh, Dr. Amir Khan. It's going to be great to hear from him. But for now, thank you for listening. And from me and everyone in the studio, it's goodbye.